0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.
1: I'm Alan Alda and this is Clear and Vivid conversations about connecting and communicating.
2: Part of what my book is about is not just the sexual abuse that Harvey committed. It's it's also about the enablers who enabled him to commit it, who knew and should have done something about it and didn't. But it's also about power. He had enormous power, and these women were sitting there and saying, oh my God, Harvey Weinstein can destroy not just my career, but my life. I'm in the movie business. I want to be in the movie business. He dominates in that world. And he knew how to use his power and abuse his power to, to frighten people.
1: That's my friend, the journalist Ken Oletta. Ken has written a book that gets to the heart of a case that got a lot of attention, partly because it happened in the movie business. And the title reflects that. It's called Hollywood Ending, Harvey Weinstein and the culture of silence. But it's the last part of that subtitle that points to a broader question, extending perhaps far beyond Hollywood, the culture of silence. This is really fascinating and a little scary because you document the life, not of a great man falling, but a sleazy man rising. And it's amazing how long he was able to practice his sleaze before being stopped.
2: Over four decades.
1: Was the first time he was actually threatened with it becoming public, was that with the two women in Cannes at the Cannes Film Festival?
2: Yes, which is a story that I was reporting at the time. I did a, a profile of Harvey Weinstein for the New Yorker magazine in 2002. And in the profile I described his abusive verbal behavior and the fist fights, et cetera, he would get in. And what 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 a kind of a thug he was. Talented, but nevertheless a thug. And I got, I heard whispers that he had raped a woman by the name of Rowena Chu at the 1998 Venice Film Festival. And that his London assistant who Rowena Chu was replacing, as she got a promotion, Zelda Perkins, had brought a suit against Harvey, threatened a lawsuit against Harvey, along with Rowena in London. And I tried to track down Rowena and, and Zelda. I I'd actually tracked Zelda Perkins down to Guatemala, where she was then living. She refused to talk to me. I couldn't find Rowena Chu. I confronted Harvey Weinstein in my last interview with him in 2002, before my profile, I said, Harvey Weinstein, did you attempt to rape Rowena Chu? And he got up from the small conference table, it was just the two of us in, his, in a conference room. He stood up, and he stood over me, and his, he held his fists, and his lip trembled, and he said, you're going to ruin my, my marriage, and my three teenage daughters will be exposed, and, and it'll just destroy my family. You can't do that. I, sitting down, said, I can't sit down and let this guy stand over me. He'll take, he'll take a poke at me, and I'm a sitting target sitting down, but I'll stand up, and I'll face him. Sit, we're the same height. He was about 100 pounds more than me, but I'm sure he was a lot faster than he was. And I stood up. We f- stood face to face. As soon as I did, what happened? Harvey Weinstein began to cry. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean tears. I mean wailed. That it's gonna destroy my life if you do this, blah, 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 blah. But I was then in the in this curious position, and the New Yorker was in this curious position. We believed that he had assaulted Rowena Chu, but we had no no evidence of it. There were no police reports, there was no forensic evidence, there were no witnesses. And and Rowena Chu and and Zelda Perkins, the two women involved, um, wouldn't speak. And so Harvey called up at that point, called up. Dave Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, and asked for a summit meeting thinking we were going to write this story. And we hadn't yet decided uh, finally, but I, I knew we couldn't write it without the evidence. And I said, Harvey, I need to see your cancer, how you paid for these non-di- two non-disclosure agreements. By the way, it was a total of almost $500,000. How would you pay for it? And he said, why Why are you asking that? I said, Harvey, because I I need to see that. If we could prove that his parent company, Disney, had paid or his current company, Miramax, had paid, we didn't need the woman testimony. We could nail this guy. And actually, a a crime would probably have been committed. He came back the next day with his brother, Bob, and slid across the table two cancel checks from his brother, Bob, personal checks. So Bob, who said to me later in the book, and I spent a fair amount of time with the brother in reporting this book, said to me that his brother told him these women were blackmailing him and would destroy his marriage. Could you help me, Bob? And Bob says, I did help him.
1: It was so interesting that so many women were assaulted, nearly raped or raped, and you couldn't get them to give names. When they finally began to talk... What was the difference? What made them talk finally? What encouraged that?
2: I give full credit to Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey of the New York Times, the two Times reporters who broke the story in early October of 2017, and Ronan Farrow who broke the story in The New Yorker. These three reporters did an amazing thing. And one of the amazing things they did, Alan, they got these women to talk in groups. The women were very afraid, isolated. And they feared Harvey, and they feared what he would do to them and, and expose them and claim that they were ambitious young women who were trying to make a name for themselves by, by suing him. And he would sue them, and they didn't have the resources to combat that. But what they did, they they would get four, five, six women in a group to together say, he did this to us. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just me, it was us. And, and they felt emboldened because of that. It was a very smart strategy to make these women feel comfortable and less fearful
1: you know it's so interesting as i talk to women in science who have had to fight against uh, the barriers that are thrown in their way the the surefire action seems to be getting together working together as, as a group and not trying to accomplish it as a single person
2: I think that's absolutely right. And if you you have to think back. Part of what my book is about is not just the sexual abuse that Harvey committed. It's, It's also about the enablers who enabled him to commit it, who knew and should have done something about it and didn't. But it's also about power. He had enormous power. And these women were sitting there and saying, oh, my God, Harvey Weinstein can destroy not just my career but my life. I'm in the movie business. I want to be in the movie business. He dominates in that world. And he knew how to use his power and abuse his power to to frighten people.
1: You talk in the book about a culture of silence. What did that mean? How did it work?
2: What it, it means is that people knew or should have known he was abusing women and kept silent. And... I, I tell a story, for instance, in the book about Hillary Silver, a woman, a young woman who came, who came for a job interview at Miramax in the, in the 1990s. And she, she comes up in the elevator, and who's in the elevator with her but Harvey Weinstein? And Harvey looks her up and down. She's a very attractive woman. He looks her up and down, and he says, where are you going? He says, I, I have an interview at, at, with the head of human resources at at the Weinstein, at Miramax. He says, great, when you're done, come and see me. This is—he's talking to a stranger, right? Yeah. She goes, does her interview, and the head of HR walks her back to Harvey's office because she said he, the boss wanted to see me. As soon as she walks in, what does Harvey do? Without talking to the HR executive who interviewed, he says he points to her and he says, "Hillary, you're hired." Mm. So she's hired. She was excited. So the day before she's to start work, she gets a call from Human Resources. Executive who says, Four people who work here would love to take you for a drink this evening. And she says, Oh my God, this is what a great place this is to work. What a culture. They're welcoming me to Miramax. It's great. So she goes for a drink, and the four executives, some from HR, one of the four assistants that Harvey Weinstein had, and two other executives, look at her and they say, Hillary, you don't want to come to work here. Reject this job. Why? Why should I reject the job? Because he will abuse you sexually. You're an attractive woman, and that's what happens to attractive women who work here. You're in danger. Don't come to work here. And she didn't come to work here. Now, if four people, not just people who worked within his immediate office, one of whom did, if they knew that Harvey was abusing the woman this way, how many other people knew? And not just the people who worked for Harvey at Merrimax. What about the agent's? They would send actresses to see him in hotel suites when he went to another city. He worked out of a hotel suite, and no one was there. that He left his staff go, and he would often abuse the women. They would complain to their agents. The agents did nothing about it.
1: It sounds like there's a group process of grooming going on, where his, his approach to grooming would be, is it okay if I do this? That's not so bad, right? is it okay if i do that and the agents and the people in the company who can warn a, a naive person coming in give them tips about don't don't sit on the same couch with him and that kind of thing but they don't give the full story it's 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 almost continuing to groom them it's okay to be in the room if he has all his clothes off just don't sit on the same couch
2: you're actually quoting almost word for word the memo and members of the staff would give out to people don't sit on the same couch with him wear two pairs of pants when you're alone with him in the hotel suite so he can't take off both both of them uh, you know don't be alarmed if he take when he comes back from dinner if he takes off and, and walks around parades around the, the suite nude that's normal what Harvey would do is normalize aberrant behavior
1: but that's what what's Killing me is that so did the people who worked for him, normalized it by saying, he'll do these outrageous things. Don't worry, that's normal.
2: That's just Harvey. That's just Harvey being Harvey. Yeah, right. totally preposterous. And so when you look at it with a fresh pair of eyes, I mean, as I'm looking at this, I'm saying, oh my God, this is insane. But if you're working in that culture for a long period of time, maybe you don't come to think of it as insane. Maybe you think if it is normal.
1: So when you started to work on this book, I think you're am I right about this, that you didn't want to just document his awfulness, his monstrous behavior, but try to understand who it was at the center of that behavior that was committing it. What in a way what was his rosebud?
2: I had, yes, I, I had a number of, of things, that mysteries I wanted to explore in, in doing this biography. It's a biography of a whole man. And the whole man is not just a sexual beast, which he was. He was also an amazingly talented producer and distributor of movies, uh, wonderful movies. And, but also I was interested, as you su- suggest, what happened in his life, to transform him into the beast, sexual beast he became. And so I went back into his childhood and interviewed people who grew up with him in Queens. And one of the things I learned, it's not a single rosebud, but it helps explain some of his behavior, certainly his, his br- brutality, verbal brutality. His mother, Miriam, dominated the household and she was constantly yelling. Harvey, don't do this. Harvey, stop beating that. Harvey, you're too fat. Harvey, this. Harvey, that. And one, of, she yells so much and so and so loudly that his friends they would play poker on weekends at different homes. They would never play at the Weinstein home. Why? Because as his friend said to me, Miriam yelled too much. It was too uncomfortable to play there. So does that explain Harvey's sexual behavior? No, but it explains. The yelling that took place, I think, in the Weinstein and the Merrimax offices over the many decades. Second thing I learned is that Harvey, in junior high school and high school, really was a bit of a nerd. He was not Harvey, the impresario. He was not a guy who dated very many women. Um, and he actually didn't, to my reporting, I found that he did not sexually assault a woman until he had power. What he did was, he went to the University of Buffalo, dropped out after his junior year, and started a rock promotion business, a very successful rock promotion business in Buffalo. And it's called Horry and Corky Presents. He got Sinatra up there. He got the Rolling Stones up there. He got, you know, all these great acts up there. And he had real power. He hired police to work at nights on their off duty. You know, he, he major advertising in local newspapers. And that's when he started to abuse women, when he had power. So power became his aphrodisiac.
1: You know, something struck a note with me when you said in the book how his mother would yell at him about being too fat and humiliate him. And then the story of the woman who managed to lock herself in the bathroom and told him, put your clothes on. And, and he did. But then when she came out, What happened?
2: She gets to the door to leave, to flee, and and as she's fleeing, he's cowering in a corner, and she intimidated with her words. I mean, she embarrassed him somehow. It's amazing, because he was not easily shamed. And he said, you just don't like me because I'm fat.
1: I connected those two moments.
2: I did too. I, same as you. <laughs> and
1: just being humiliated constantly by his mother would, I suppose, contribute to his wanting to be able to humiliate other people and establish himself as the, as he called himself, the new sheriff in town.
2: The new effin' sheriff in town. Yeah. He said that very publicly.
1: But what is the difference between him and his brother Bob? Because his brother Bob, while they both wanted to make movies eventually that were more like true foe than shoot em ups car chases, they were more interested in movies with more substance, one, one behaved like a monster and the other didn't. What, what's, what was the difference there?
2: Well, actually, Bob initially uh, yelled a lot, as did, as did Harvey. Bob, however, never w- did what Harvey did with women. He didn't abuse women, A. And B, Bob underwent a very fundamental change. He became an alcoholic. And in the early 90s, or, or I should say in the early 2000s, he went in for, for treatment and to conquer his alcoholism. And he did, and became very wedded to the idea of looking inside himself and analyzing himself and analyzing other people and realizing his vulnerabilities and weaknesses and trying to correct them. And so he began to focus on his brother and tell him, Harvey, I think you're a sex addict. Harvey, you got to do this. And when Harvey was exposed in 2017, Bob found a place for him to go in Arizona for treatment in, in, the, in the fall of 2017. And Harvey went to this treatment facility, but then ignored it. He, he, he didn't stay in the same place. He didn't take part in the group conversations where people kind of admit, as they do in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I'm a sex addict and this is why I'm embarrassed and stuff. Harvey had no shame. He had no guilt. At that point, Bob stopped speaking to his brother Harvey, and hasn't spoken to him since, since early 2018. But one of the things I learned from that experience is that I spent a fair amount of time, as you know from reading the book, talking to experts, the psychiatrists, the people who, who deal with rapists and, and, and people with the kind of behavior that Harvey exhibited. And one of the things I found is that if you search for a definition of what is a sociopath, there basically, they say, three key criteria to define a sociopath. A sociopath is someone who is a narcissist. Harvey clearly qualified as a narcissist. A sociopath is someone who has no empathy. If you sat in the trial every day of Harvey Weinstein, as I did, and watched six women testify about his behavior and him falling asleep as they were doing it, you, you, you knew he lacked empathy. And the third thing, they say, that defines a sociopath, is lack of guilt. Harvey, when he's given a chance at his trial to stand up and 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 give a speech before the judge sentenced him, he basically talked as if he were a victim of a kind of a new, a, a new McCarthyism that's sweeping the country and, and is putting me, who just had consensual affairs with these women, and you're going to send me to jail for consensual affairs, he took no responsibility for what he had done.
1: I thought that distance he placed between himself and his responsibility f- for what he did was really evident where Bob's, Bob tries to talk him out of being so distant from his own humanity. How, how did that go exactly?
2: It was a lunch at the Four Seasons restaurant with David Boys, the attorney, and Bob. And Bob coached David Boys. David... I want to get Harvey to look more at himself and, and be more self-aware and introspective and, and, and smell the roses more and not just be angry all the time. So at lunch, David Boys tells about himself growing up on a farm in the Midwest and, and can't believe the success he's had and how proud he is and his grandkids and his kids. And, 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 and Harvey is sitting there. Bob has a tear rolling down his cheek. And Harvey's sitting there, and he turns to Bob and David and said, why are you telling me this? As if, if he just opaque. He had no ability to empathize, to understand. because he, And that's why Bob, in the end, and I conclude the book with a quote from Bob, where he says there's no Harvey. There's no there, there. He has no feelings. And, and he demonstrated that repeatedly.
1: When we come back from our break, Ken, Oletta, and I grapple with the question, if an artist turns out to have behaved in ways we judge deplorable, should we reject their art? Hard to believe we've done more than 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid, which is over 200 reasons to support the show on Patreon.com. Here are three more. One The proceeds from sponsors and donors support the Nonprofit Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, training people around the world to be better communicators. Two, at the highest level of support, you're invited to join the monthly video chat with me and other donors. And three, if you're interested, I'll record your voicemail message, either a plain vanilla one, Betty can't come to the phone right now, but leave your name and number, you know, like that. Or one with some snark in it. Hi, this is Alan Alda. Betty has no interest in talking on the phone right now. Probably busy listening to my podcast. But leave your name and number and it's entirely possible you'll get a call back. Just a touch of healthy indifference for your loved ones. Go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreo dot slash clearandvivid. And thank you. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Ken Orletta. His book shows Harvey Weinstein to be a truly awful person, but he was also a brilliant movie producer. What are we to make of that? So I'm wondering about the broader questions raised by this. For instance, if you have a monster who's a talented artist, should the art disappear with the artist? A lot of people... Can't look at the paintings by painters who have disgraced themselves. This guy won, I think I think I saw in your book that he his pictures won the Oscar for best picture seven years in a row.
2: I think it was 11, actually.
1: Oh, wow. So by some standards, he made good movies. Some people feel that now that work is in question. What do you think about that?
2: I, I don't think it should be in question. I, I mean, if you think about Harvey, Harvey Weinstein is in prison for 23 year sentence. He's got a trial coming up this fall in Los Angeles.
1: And another one in England, right?
2: Potentially one in England after that. Harvey will never get out of prison. He's not well. And, and so he, he is living uh, disgraced, and he should be disgraced. Um, the question you're asking is, does the disgrace... And the punishment he's now receiving, which he deserves, should it obviate and wipe out Pulp Fiction, My Left Foot, you know, The Crying Game, Sex Lives and Videotape, all these amazing movies that he was associated with? And I say no. And one of the interesting challenges for me in writing a biography of Harvey Weinstein, Alan, is could I write a book about someone I wanted to punch in the nose, who I think is a real monster. Could I be fair to him? Could I could I describe his talent? Could I describe how he made those movies? And And otherwise, it's not a biography. I'm not writing about his whole life. I'm just hitting him over the head again and again. And you don't want to read a book like that. I don't want to read a book like that.
1: You know, it's something I don't get. Maybe you can help me understand this. Here you paint the picture of a guy who's sociopathic in all likelihood totally he thinks of other people as objects to maneuver right yet he was inspired to make movies like those of true and other thoughtful empathic filmmakers how could he have that impulse how could he have both impulses at the same time
2: you're asking a really profound question which is part of what i'm exploring i mean he, he did love those movies. He knew those movies. And one of the things that, that actors and directors liked about working with Harvey, unlike many studio heads, he really knew Truffaut movies. He knew the, 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 he knew what he wanted in a movie. He knew, how to, he knew that a screenplay was central to the success of a movie. And even if you had a good director and a good cast, if it was a lousy screenplay, it was not going to be a good movie. And he would read those screenplays as he read books. Harvey was 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 an interesting character in many ways, and he had real talent. And and you, I don't know how you write a biography and ignore that talent, but also you can't ignore the contradictions that you're pointing out.
1: Yeah, it seems even to oversee the writing of a screenplay. You have to have some empathy for the audience that's going to see it. You, if you're going to say this scene doesn't work here. You have, to, you have to imagine what the audience is feeling while they watch it, which is not the same guy who says, can I put my hand here? It's, it's just, a, just a massage.
2: Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, Harvey would, would do survey research after movies, you know, but also one of the reasons he was a brilliant marketer is because he understood what the audience wanted and what, what, what would appeal to them or not appeal to them. And that took some empathy which he didn't have, as you're suggesting, in his his one-on-one dealings with with women, which is extraordinary.
1: You know, I've written a little about this, something that I call dark empathy, where you have enough empathy to know what they're thinking so you can manipulate them.
2: He clearly had it. Um, He had an ability to foresee what an audience would want, what masses would want or not want. Um, and he didn't have that ability with individuals. Yet, you know, he was a good father. He was attentive to his kids. He drove them to school in the morning. I mean, there are contradictions here, like Mm. with anyone you're dealing with. And part of of her biography is to report and and share those contradictions with the reader.
1: This, I think, helped spark the Me Too movement. Have you noticed unintended consequences like executives who are now not mentoring younger women because they don't want to be in the same room alone with them and talk business?
2: Yes. Uh, I mean, you, you, Me Too has been a tremendous force for good. No question about that, and the, the aftermath of Harvey Weinstein being exposed, and all the others who've been exposed since. I mean, you think about Matt Lauer, Charlie Rose. I mean, you go down Mario Batali. You go down a list of dozens of, of of males who who did not behave properly with women. Uh, but inevitably, uh, I mean, one of the things I find in talking to people in in Hollywood or just executives, period, including in the news business. They say, when I meet with a woman, I don't, leave my, I don't close my door. I leave it open because I don't want anyone to suspect that I'm having an affair or somehow abusing this person. Inevitably, what happens is that women will lose out on the mentoring that, that would help their careers. There's another thing, Alan, that, that I think about a lot. Harvey is the most extreme example of, of someone who abused women. He's in prison for it, right? Right. But you take many of these other cases. I mean, I think about Mike Oreskes, an AP Associated Press executive who, who kissed a woman, you know, uninvited. But nevertheless, he's not Harvey Weinstein. He has a hard time getting a job, but he's not alone. There are many other people who, who, who didn't do what Harvey Weinstein did, but they, they suffered the death penalty the way Harvey, their careers are over. And, and there's something unfair about that, as is unfair the following. One of the things that many women in Me Too say is, believe women. That's the slogan. Well, I'm a journalist. If you tell me, believe Donald Trump, a president, or believe a mayor or believe a a governor, I, I say, no, no, that's not my job. My job is to be skeptical, to keep a distance. The right slogan is, listen to women. Don't tell me to believe women without checking what they're saying. And so I think, inevitably, there are excesses, as your question suggests. And, and you know, we'll work it out. But on balance, the pluses far outweigh the minuses.
1: Did anything come up in your reporting on this that indicates that there's more attention to the kind of collegiality among possible victims of the kind that was expressed by the the reporters from The Times who brought women together, gave them a chance to feel solidarity. Is there any effort to do that more that you're aware of?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that was fascinating about the New York City criminal trial that, that convicted Harvey Weinstein, that in the past, many district attorneys were reluctant to bring cases in court where the women... Had, had claimed they had been raped or abused or sexually harassed by a man, and yet they continued to keep in touch with that man. Yeah. Some of these women, they claimed he raped them, and yet they would write him emails afterwards and keep in touch with him and, say, and sometimes have consensual sex with him afterwards. And the D.A. Vance, in New York City's case, decided to prosecute the case anyway. And by winning that case... Embolden women and law enforcement all across the country to think, hey, we can overcome that. And the question then becomes, what explains why a woman who was raped would would keep in touch with the rapist? And one of the things that the prosecution in the New York City case against Harvey did, they called to the stand a woman by the name of Dr. Barbara Ziv, who teaches at Temple University, who's an expert on rape and rape victims. And she said that 40% Forty percent of people who are victims of rape keep in touch with the rapist. Mm. Does she give any insight into why? Multiple reasons. It could be because they blame themselves. It could be because they're afraid. It could be because they, they're in denial that it ever happened to them. Mm. It could be because they thought it, it would be exposed in some way. It could be because they didn't want anyone to know about it. And. And it could be because they were just ambitious; they wanted a job, and that's why they came to see, you know, Bill Cosby or 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 Harvey Weinstein. But there are multiple reasons why this happens, and one of the things that was very effective about the New York City trial is those reasons were ventilated, and 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 the jury believed them. And the women stood together at the end. The six women who testified. And, and, and felt heartened and really strengthened by that. And people said to me, this will strengthen cases against rapists all across the country. People will be willing, prosecutors will be willing to bring cases against people for women who claim they were abused and yet kept in touch with the man.
1: I have one final question about this. This culture of silence existed in show business. Where you have a famous, powerful producer, studio head, and you have famous uh, actors or attractive women. So it's going to get press. Is show business particularly vulnerable to this kind of culture of silence? Or do you think that it's in other fields, but we don't hear about it so much because it's not as sexy to write about?
2: I, I, I think we're living it with Donald Trump today in the Republican Party, if you forgive the politicization of this. But uh, Donald Trump claims that he actually won an election, that he lost by 7 million votes. And he claims fraud, fraud, fraud. And, and that really becomes a danger to democracy, as we're witnessing in the January 6th congressional hearings. And yet Republican Party, how many in the Republican Party are doing what Liz Cheney is doing, and challenging, very, very few. They buy into his lie, why? Because they're afraid of challenging. That's the culture of silence right there. They're afraid they'll lose a primary if Donald Trump comes out against them because they came out against him and told the truth. And so, it, it, I mean, it's, it, it's what you call, what we call the blue shield in police where, where a cop misbehaves and, and no one calls him out on that and exposes him for what, for his misbehavior. And why? Because they're afraid of being called a rat. They're afraid of, they want to be conformist. And, and that's true in Hollywood. It's true in politics in Washington. It's true in the police departments. It's true in so many other fields.
1: Well, we could talk a long time about this because especially now that we've broadened the issue <laughs> to the whole culture, so many aspects of the culture. So we'll do that the next time we're playing tennis. Meanwhile, we always end our show with seven quick questions, generally to do with communication. Are you
2: game? Yeah, I'm game.
1: What do you wish you really understood?
2: What do I wish I really understood?
1: Yeah, about anything.
2: <laughs> well, I, I wish I understood what, what prompted Harvey Weinstein, but I, actually it would go to food probably. I want to know, I mean, how do I make the perfect, Sauce, red sauce.
1: (laughs) You already made a good one.
2: (laughs) I I want it to be perfect,
1: not (laughs) good. Okay. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong?
2: You're an idiot.
1: (laughs) Especially if they complain about the red sauce, right? Right. (laughs) What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
2: Are you happy? Yeah, I mean, I'm
1: happy.
2: Can't you tell? I smile all the time. Yeah, you do. That's right.
1: How do you stop a compulsive talker?
2: Excuse me, but I, I, my phone's ringing. I can hear it downstairs.
1: Wait a minute. Your phone rang during this conversation.
2: I know, but but it, it, different different reasons. Okay, let's and say. By the way, it's still dead. The person's gone. <laughs>
1: let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a real conversation with the person?
2: Well, what Harvey Weinstein would do is say, his opening line with women was, I have a kink in my neck, would you give me a massage? So it how does that bad.
1: work for you? Does that... <laughs> no,
2: no. Now, could you tell me what you're eating? <laughs> I'm eating your red what sauce. <laughs> I, yeah, no, what I always do in a restaurant, actually, I asked the, the head waiter, I said, imagine this is your last meal. And what would you order? And I always get the best dish in the house that way, in a new restaurant.
1: I never heard that before. That's good. Okay, next to last. What gives you confidence?
2: I mean, my daughter. When my daughter gives me a hug, I feel really confident.
1: Very nice. Okay, last question. What book changed your life?
2: Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. And I, I read it in college, and what, what I remember its impact on me was that there was a main character by the name of Raskolnikov, and Raskolnikov believed that it was okay to murder people. There was logic if they were foul people or wasteful people or people that he didn't think were deserving. And he could do it. And, and I remember thinking, you can't, logic, there are limits to logic. There ought to be more morality and, and, and values that, that you embrace. And he didn't embrace any of those. And from that, I, I was just strengthened with the resolve that you had to, there were limits to logic and you had to think about morality and values, etc. And also it's a beautifully written book.
1: And it sounds like it led directly to writing the book about Harvey Weinstein.
2: (laughs) Raskolnikov would be proud. (laughs) I could have called him that.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Ken. It was great talking with you.
2: Thank you, Alan. Same here.
1: This has been Clear and Vivid, at least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid, up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Ken Oletta is a regular contributor to The New Yorker magazine since launching his Annals of Communication column in 1993. He's written 13 books, most of them bestsellers. His latest is Hollywood Ending, Harvey Weinstein, and The Culture of Silence. You can catch up with Ken on his website, KenOletta.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Kernig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with ER doctor Jay Baruch. Experience has taught him that diagnosing the problem that brings a patient to the emergency room requires more than a battery of clinical tests. It requires listening to their story.
2: What we forget as caregivers is that the decision to come to the emergency department, to leave your day to leave your responsibilities of the day, whether it's work or
1: caregiving or whatever, having fun, going shopping, doing chores, is a narrative event in their life. You know, so even when patients come in and, and say, oh, that person has nothing. No, they have something. <laughs> There's something that got them out of bed in the middle of the night or got them led to leave work to come in and talk to us and tell us their story. We have to find out what that is. Doctor and author Jay Baruch. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.